This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, whatever is wrong with the Democratic Republic of Congo, you can blame on the United States, which has been running things ever since Washington helped kill Congo's first elected leader, Patrice Lumumba, six decades ago. We'll hear from the director of Friends of Congo. And there will be one less king in Africa if a social movement in Swaziland is successful. But first, Dr. Yannick Marshall is a professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. The title of his latest article in Black Agenda Report delivers a blunt message. Black liberal, your time is up. We asked Marshall, who are these black liberals that have called the shots in black politics for so many years? The first word that came into my mind is imposter. The people who will go out of their way to as I said, carbon guts at the essence of the uprising, the essence of the rebellion, and take it for themselves. But their interests do not align with the people that are rising against the permanence of state to black violence. They want to take the essence and the anger and the righteousness of that movement and to use it to extend that police state with the same mild adjustment that is always, which is called reform, that is always part of the state, part of the police state's apparatus. When people speak about reform, reform is always happening. There's always a new manual. There's always a new way of holding down protesters. There's always reform as part of policing. Policing is the exercise of reforming population and population control. But they would use that. They would take the anger to be able to extend that project but use our voice, our essence, our soul, our anger against it. And so this is where I would say that the black liberal, when they're masquerading as being radically upset with the status quo, are the imposters that are working for our demise. I hope I'm not being too harsh, but it sounds like you're talking about almost Dracula-like characteristics, that is, vamping on the people, using the people's energy and the people's righteous protest in order to aggrandize themselves and make a deal. Uh, Dracula works, the parasite works, all all of our favorite terms work. I think sometimes I worry that I'm too harsh just because the point of what I'm um, hoping to get across might be lost. But it really, part of our problem is to be able to think of black liberals as people that uh, just have not gone far enough or are too patient or too naive. And that gives them an undue benefit of the doubt. What I believe instead is that at this point, with uh, just a cursory glance at the, the set of colonial U.S.'s history, they must be confronted with the truth of our lives. And the truth of our lives says that every single uh, state-initiated policy change has not overturned our condition. It has extended, it has adjusted it, it has made it into different things, but it hasn't overturned it. They could not have seen this connection. And it's unreasonable to think that, okay, well, the next policy change where freedom is just around the corner. 
know the state at its essence is anti-black and it makes no sense to continue furthering that project. At Black Agenda Report, we often refer to these folks as the black misleadership class. But at what point in our history did these folks start calling the shots in black politics? And hasn't their grip on influence been weakened somewhat by the reemergence of movement politics in the past decade? There's a number of possible infection points that we can point to. But I would say that with the arrival of 24-hour, the mass media in 24-hour format, cable news format, you have a more of a chance to be able to kind of set the discourse about black life, about the state, etc. And so would have people like Malcolm X being on platforms that could galvanize a number of people um, in the 60s. When we had the Maroons or the anti-slavery activists that were enslaved against the plantations that had the voice in the form of fire. With this new centralization of the discursive apparatus, the media, the mass media, being able to pick and choose who will be the spokespeople for blackness, I feel that at this modern time, the deliberate exclusion of black radical voices, black radical ideas everywhere makes it seem as if the only black representation that is possible, the the parameters of black thought is seen within whatever bow-tie, smiling, pundit, flatterer that exists on CNN or MSNBC. There is a silencing of black radicals. And this, I think, even though this has happened always before, because Malcolm X and enslaved <laughs> people have been commenting on fellows from the colony's origins, but this seems to be taking it to another level. Well, it seems like these aspiring black classes are multitasking. They act as spokespersons for the community when they call upon themselves to do so, but they're also translators. Who are they translating to and for? So they are translating the righteousness, the rage, the anger, the thoughts, the movement of a fed-up, oppressed class. They are representing them, they're setting up new frameworks, setting up new language to exclude, once they exclude our voices, they take uh, what is clear on, on TV screen and then translate that to a mass audience read to be a white audience or to be a white liberal audience. And so they're excluding and challenging black radicals, saying what we're doing in a way to appeal to whiteness. But it's also a educative process for next generation. So no matter what we do, our actions will be filtered and disfigured by their power to be able to tell what we've done to next generations of black uh, thinkers, black activists, black radicals, etc. So that we have continuously lost the history of our presence in the rebelling fundamentally against, radically rebelling against the system. And we always think that, okay, well, we have to start things new because they own the history books, they own the televisions, they own pretty much the discourse itself. So they're translating to our progeny, if you want to call it that, intellectual progeny, black radical progeny, and translating to the wider, okay with the black genocidal state culture. So they're just in the mix of drawing the energy, as you call it, vampirically drawing the energy of our struggle to the state and to the apologists of anti-black violence. It did seem during the time of Ferguson that lots of movement folks, at least, were rejecting the counsel of these black liberals or black misleaders. 
Have they resumed their position of translating authority since then? Yeah, I think the movement, the presence of the uprising, is in itself a block to their power. The presence of the movement, the presence of our activity is a block to their translating power. Because they haven't really ever been at a pause or they haven't really relinquished their hold on the, the microphone. They've always been there, but the presence of our activity is what has given the lie to what they're doing. But because they still own, because they're still the ones that are all, like we are speaking in our blogs and our podcasts and our social media and the dark corners of the streets and the alleyways and the prisons, this is where our discussion space is. But in terms of who controls the major megaphones, basically who controls the machinery of history and of media. They are the ones that are sitting there at the pundit tables. They're the ones that have TV shows. They're the ones that own the major modes of intellectual production. So for me, it's not that the movement has stopped listening to them. It's that their movement by its presence has given an alternative that has always in general been excluded. You say these black liberals enjoy beating us down with quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King. And I remember John Lewis, the congressman, seemed to think that he was a Dr. King. But <laughs> isn't this beatdown really unfair to the real Dr. King? It is unfair. But unfortunately, and I'm thinking that I'm coming from an almost extreme position, that whatever Dr. King has done, his legacy has been so disfigured, so co-opted and owned by black liberals and white liberal establishment, including Donald commercials and TV commercials and all that, that any work to rest his true legacy will already be flooded over with the power of their representation. And so for me, because there are so many other thinkers, other people in the black radical tradition that have not been heard, I'm not sure why it's necessary to be able to kind of say, yes, Martin Luther King has been treated. This is the real Martin Luther King. It's better for me, and this is my true position, it's better to see the entire Martin Luther King industry and to say that the black radical voices that were deliberately suppressed, this is the tradition. The Maroons tradition, this is the tradition that we're operating from. We are not operating from your easily defined civil rights to a better policing. We are now, because you have taken over this person that we, that's who we did love, you have taken over this person we're now opening other doors, and those other doors will be harder to take over. Yes, that class and their white allies and their corporate allies are bent on abolishing the word abolish. <laughs> and you would expect to say Master to do. That is what the whole purpose of when you're thinking about in the 1840s and 1950s when the idea that slavery might be not the best uh, was becoming um, much spoken in, in like their own coffee centers, etc. Then you would have an attempt, because they see the writing of the wall, to change abolition and make it mean something else. Change the abolition of slavery, of child slavery, and make it mean, well, maybe we can have a reform here or there. Same exact process with the abolition of the slave catchers, the police state now. The writing seems to be on the wall. And so we will try to adjust as much as possible to make abolition to something else. Let's try to make it into a very serious reform, a very serious anti-bias training. Do something else to maintain the institution that has proven in every hour of its history 
to be discriminatory against black people, to save that institution by doing something other than winning the world of it. Yes, these are actually very, very conservative black forces because they want to conserve the police state that has brought us mass black incarceration and destroyed much of our social structures. Yes, and I think one of the faults that I keep on falling into and that I'm hoping that we as a distinct population, black radicals, different from black liberals, what we might need to do is to not get so easily tricked in the packaging of conservative ideology when it's melanated. So when there are black people speaking, working for in the conservative interest, which is the main maintenance of the uh, white supremacist state, we might not say, hey, maybe it's not even good to be able to say this person is an Uncle Tom or this person is like a fellow. I mean, these things, first of all, they don't affect the fellows of the Uncle Tom, and it's too light of a critique. We might just rid ourselves of these, you should know better, and just understand clearly, and to make it part of our general worldview, to find our own form of colorblindness, and regardless of your melanin content or your history. Your decision to align yourself with the genocidal anti-black forces is all that is relevant. And so your increased access is just a more a tool on that mission rather than anything that we should uh, attribute any more significance to. Your blackness means nothing when you are the overseer. As a practical matter, most of these folks are just Democrats. That is their allegiance to the Democratic Party, and many, many of them to the most corporate wing of that party. Yes. For me, it seems like it's a mathematical equation that the Democrats and Republicans cannot at all, by almost just inherent in their structure, cannot develop an adequate and satisfactory uh, liberation for black people. The liberal and conservative forces have not ever, regardless of the amount of opportunities, done this. And in their ties to both the corporate interests, but also the Democrat ties to bipartisanship, which is a dedication and a commitment to the most overt anti-black and racist elements in society. Their clear and obvious and not hidden um, dedication to compromise with racist uh, actual emancipation. So it is, by definition, one's dedication to expanding democratic power that by themselves have already said that they were going to sign on to working with and being gym buddies and uh, passing, being passed on the head and passing on the shoulder, people who associate with uh, white supremacist individuals and organizations and speakers. That by itself is evidence enough that bipartisanship, they're working together, is working together with our enemies for our demise. That's a one-to-one equation for me. You end your article with a turn of phrase that is definitely begins uh, Dr. Martin Luther Kingish. It goes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards Malcolm. I always thought that Malcolm's greatest gift to us was opening up the argument in Black America so that we could criticize those who purported to be our leaders in public with white folks listening if they want. Yes. Imagine how terrible our days would be if in 
the language of black history, in the dominant language of black history. There wasn't this haunting, this shadow trail of Malcolm X always correcting and providing the alternative towards what has been now co-opted as Martin Luther King. If there was no Malcolm X, we would only be thinking that this is, not, not everybody, but we would only we'll be having to wrestle with the strength of the dominant trajectory of our, of our history being what is called problematically civil rights and Martin Luther King, etc. It would be hard to, to fight that. Malcolm X, by his presence, as you're saying, the gift of providing something fundamentally different, a rejection of the faith in white supremacist uh, colonialism. Malcolm X's presence itself weakened the kidnapping of Martin Luther King and parading him uh, for white supremacist interests. And what I suggest is that the presence of black radical thought of beings, of bodies, of people, that presence itself will continue that tradition of Malcolm X and bring to life the infinity of other possibilities in the black radical world, whether it's marunage, whether it's people that have destroyed plantations, whether it's black poetry traditions that do not follow the traditions that are taught in a number of black studies classes. What's the apparent, the sudden apparent and possibility of black radical presence means is to extend the possibilities of black freedom and thus loosen their grip on telling us our history and their being both uh, white supremacists and their allies in black liberalism. That was Dr. Yannick Marshall speaking from Tanzania. The strategic center of Africa is the Congo River Basin, an area that has also been ground zero for massive genocides and half a century of U.S. imperial dominance. Maurice Carney is a director and co-founder of Friends of Congo, which advocates tirelessly for African liberation. Carney was interviewed by Tierney Cherie of African Esquire TV. I got started in this work through, particularly around the Congo, through really two, um, two forces. Uh, one, uh, I was intrigued uh, by the extent uh, to which Malcolm X, uh, Malcolm X focused on the Congo in his, uh, in his speeches, uh, in his presentations. Uh, I, if you watch the, his debate at uh, Oxford, uh, the overwhelming majority of that debate um, centered around the Congo. And he went in depth on uh, the Congolese revolution, uh, those who had betrayed it. Um, but he uh, almost always uh, talked about the Congo and, uh, and Lumumba and uh, placed Congo in a really, a, in a lot of respects, at the center of uh, uh, African or the anti-colonial um, struggle and African liberation. I recall uh, in one of the, the recordings, it was uh, in one of the early meetings of the organization of uh, African-American unity. And the people, uh, he was supposed to show a film on the Congo, uh, but the, there was an issue with the film and it, it wasn't able to be shown. Uh, but apparently people in the, in the audience were uh, somewhat uh, uh, concerned in the sense that, you know, why are you focusing on the Congo? We have no problems here in the United States. And um, Malcolm retorted, which I thought was, um, uh, spoke to the, uh, essence of the uh, importance of the Congo. He said that as long as you think you have to fix Mississippi before you fix the Congo, you will never get Mississippi fixed. Um, so he, he located um, our struggles as African people 
in a global context. That is, irrespective of where we are on the planet, uh, the essence of our pursuit uh, out of this um, 500 years of, uh, uh, of suppression uh, is the same, whether we're in Mississippi, Harlem, or in Kinshasa or Kisangani. Uh, so that, that in terms of ideologically and uh, the framework in terms of looking at this, uh, the heart of the African continent, uh, Malcolm was a, a key source. Uh, and also I, I have Cong Congolese mentor. Uh, who, uh, we've uh, worked together for the last quarter century or so, uh, who embodied, uh, who, who, he was Congolese, uh, involved in politics, uh, even ran for president in the Congo uh, back in 2006. Uh, but uh, what struck me about him is that uh, he wasn't just focused on the Congo. He recognized also that uh, that Congo uh, was a part of a larger puzzle, or what we call Congo today, because what we call Congo today wasn't created by Congolese. It was created by by Europeans, much like the rest of the African continent. So we're just using the word Congo in that quote-unquote nation state or that state uh, just for um, point of reference. But we're talking about African people located in a particular geographic space and uh, been engaged uh, in a battle to, to control the land and the resources therein uh, for the benefit of African people, not just those in that particular geographic space, but for the benefit of African people writ large. So uh, the gentleman's name, uh, mentor, really uh, love my brother, uh, Dr. Alufuele Mbui Kalala has had a great impact on me in terms of my engagement in this work, along with uh, listening to the um, speeches and words of, of Malcolm. And then as you dig deeper, you find that uh, just about uh, any revolutionary figure of note uh, the last uh, half century or so uh, recognize uh, the centrality of the place that we call Congo in the heart of the African continent to the freedom and liberation of the continent as a whole and of African people. Um, Kwame Nkrumah, who some people dubbed the father of Pan-Africanism, wrote an entire book about it called The Challenge of Congo. And in the forward of the book, even before the forward, there's an agreement laid out there uh, between Nkrumah and uh, Lumumba Patrice Emery Lumumba, where Congo would serve as the titular capital for Nkrumah's United States of Africa. And there's a whole host of reasons why that makes um, sense. If you really read any of the works of Sheikh Anta Giyop, um, Federated States of Africa, for example, he gets into the whole question of a Congo centrality to the industrialization of, uh, of Africa. Uh, if you reference, uh, uh, if you reference uh, Franz Fanon and Fanon in uh, African revolutions, he talks about, uh, he paints a, a simple but powerful picture of uh, Congo where he says that the African continent is shaped like a gun and Congo is its trigger. You pull that trigger, it ignites a combustion, uh, sets up a combustion that will light up the entire African continent. Um, so whether you're talking about Fanon, whether you're talking about uh, in Kruma, uh, whether you're talking about Malcolm, 
Um, even Che Guevara himself recognized uh, Che and Fidel, you have to say Che and Fidel, uh, recognized that uh, Congo uh, was uh, central and it remained central in the anti-colonial struggle to the point where he went there in 1965. Uh, some people even speculate that when Che and Malcolm met in, uh, in New York, uh, that they had discussed uh, plans uh, around the Congo. It's, uh, Malcolm supported the revolutionary figures, not only in the Congo, not only in, in word, but in, in, in deed. Um, so, and Che famously said that Congo's problem is a world problem. And the extent to which uh, Congolese will be successful in their revolution is the same extent to which Africa will be successful in ridding itself of the yoke of colonialism. Uh, so when you have uh, the best of our freedom fighters uh, sharing, uh, writing books, giving speeches, uh, sharing what uh, the importance of, uh, of this, uh, this geographic space uh, to the liberation of our people, then it, it, at the very least it, it should um, uh, catch your attention. And then <laughs> the more you delve into it, uh, at least what I've found is uh, the centrality of the Congo in what um, Marimba and me calls uh, the Mafa, where that 500 years, the past 500 years, beginning with the trafficking of Africans, uh, how Congo has been central in pivotal periods. Uh, the uh, so-called slave trade, uh, the bulk of the Africans, uh, four out of every, every 10 African, if we were to believe UNESCO and the Emory University Slavery Database, four out of every 10 African came out of the Congo region, where we're talking about, which is different from today, we're talking about Gabon, uh, the Republic of Congo or Congo Brazzaville, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo or Congo Kinshasa, you know, Equatorial Guinea and uh, uh, Angola, that whole swath that represented the Congo empire. So four out of every 10 Africans that have been trafficked to the Americas uh, bring that Congo, K-O-N-G-O, Congolese culture uh, throughout, the, um, throughout the, uh, the, the Americas. So in that initial extraction of resources from the African continent for the benefit of Europe and capitalism, Congo was pivotal in the supply of the human resource. And uh, we fast forward a few hundred years in the second major encroachment on the African continent on the part of Europeans, 1884-85 Berlin Conference, we, uh, which was also called the Congo Conference, we see that Congo looms large again. Um, because uh, as many of you know, uh, the Berlin Conference was, uh, was certainly about Europe establishing the sphere of influence on the African continent, but also it was critical is that you in, in the Europeans establishing their spheres of influence, they wanted to make sure they didn't go to war uh, against each other or reduce the conflict among themselves as they captured Africa. And Congo was a big prize. Uh, and there's a reason why it was called at the time the Congo Free State, in that it would serve as a free trade zone for Europeans and a free movement zone. Uh, and uh, it was given to King Leopold II of Belgium as his own personal property. Uh, but he had to concede 
that even though it's your personal property, your private property, uh, you are allowing free trade and free movement to all European powers so that there's no issue around them going to conflict, uh, fight with each other. So in that, in the carving up of the continent, we see Congo looming uh, larger again. And uh, I would argue the people living in that geographic space uh, have paid the dearest price uh, in the subjugation of Africans over the past, pursuant to the, uh, the so-called slave trade. Because in that 23 year period from 1885 to 1908, the Congo was the private property of King Leopold II. The population was decimated by half. Uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 million people perished as the king extracted ivory and uh, predominantly rubber to fuel uh, the burgeoning uh, tire industry needed for bicycles and automobiles in the West. And that's really the, the relationship that Africa, uh, Congo is emblematic in, in the most extreme sense of the relationship between Africa and, uh, and Europe in that uh, the, it's been plundered uh, where, you know, we're talking about the, by, as a result, plundered through the people, uh, through the so-called tra slave trade, and then natural resources uh, coming out of the Berlin Conference, um, rubber, and even right up to today, if you look at the tragedy in the Congo from 1996 to the present, and the estimated 6 million Congolese at least have perished as resources have been extracted, again, to fuel Western industries, whether it's the coltan for our cell phones or the cobalt that we need for the batteries in our iPad or in our electric vehicles like the Tesla, Prius, and all the other auto companies that are now developing electric vehicles. So the, the centrality of the Congo has been represented has been present uh, both in the tragedy that Africans have faced uh, to an extreme sense, uh, probably more than any other uh, region on the on the planet where Africans uh, inhabit, and then of course on the potential side as to what Congo can do for the liberation of Africa, as laid out by Kwame Nkrumah in the challenge of the Congo, and as articulated by uh, many other. Uh, revolutionary figures. Wow, you said so much and a lot came to mind with what you were talking about. Um, one, like you said, so this is a Pan-Africanist platform, obviously, and um, this is a location that is very central to really the entire African diaspora, because like you said, the transatlantic slave trade um, that heavily came out of the Congo, and then uh, of course the partition of Africa. Um, to people in the diaspora who are not aware of just how under siege Congo is today, could you paint a picture of the everyday situation for a Congolese person? Yeah, it's interesting that you said under siege. Uh, for people who are not aware, um, probably the first thing, uh, one of the first things that they should be aware of, the extent to which Congo is under siege today is directly connected to US imperialism. And it, uh, the condition that we find the Congo in today is a result of United States foreign policy, right? Uh, just a few years ago, the US, the United States State Department uh, published um, some declassified documents that look at US covert action 
uh, in the Congo in the 1960s. And at the time, the, U the covert action, of course, U.S. covert action is led primarily by the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, it was the largest covert action in the world at the time, in the, in the early 1960s. And uh, that covert action uh, resulted in, uh, in several things. Uh, one, it uh, overthrew uh, Congo's democratically elected prime minister uh, at the time, which was Patrice Emery Lumumba, who the United States saw as a dangerous figure. Therefore, they didn't really give him much time to get settled in as, as prime minister. And uh, you can probably best uh, follow U.S. foreign policy uh, at this time by checking out uh, what the, the chief of station of the CIA uh, wrote uh, about uh, his role in overthrowing Congo's first democratically elected lead leader. Uh, uh, he wrote a, a, a book, his name is Larry Devlin. He wrote a book entitled Chief of Station Congo. So he talked about how he corrupted uh, Congolese elites, uh, how he overthrew Patrice Emery Lumumba, uh, how he tried to assassinate Lumumba. Uh, he claimed that he failed, but uh, <laughs> a lot of folks beg to differ because Lumumba was eventually assassinated just six months or so after uh, he was uh, inaugurated. He was inaugurated on June 30th, which is 1960, which Congress celebrates its independence, which was yesterday. And he was assassinated on January 17th, 1961. So the United States, according to the, their own documents, uh, they overthrew democratically elected prime minister. And then every figure that came after uh, Lumumba that were ascended to the level of head of state the Central Intelligence Agency had a say in, had a veto on. Uh, so in the first decade of the independence, really it's a, it was a country that was being run by uh, CIA uh, agents of the CIA, <laughs> to put it, uh, African agents of the CIA. So uh, the document argued that the United States, uh, you uh, took advantage of divisions, use corruption as a means of achieving its, uh, its aims, and basically installed a corrupt political culture at the foundation of this independent state, to the point where uh, just about every leader that, that no leader rose to power in the Congo without the blessing of the United States over the next 50 years or so. So not only did the US overthrow a democratically elected leader, and you can't really leave it at the level of leader, but it dismantled and it eviscerated any democratic uh, presence whatsoever. So it went on a campaign of dismantling uh, the democratic apparatus that, that had put Lumumba in place. And then it, the United States installed uh, a dictator over the Congolese people. Uh, Joseph Desiree Mobutu. And not only did the U.S. install that dictator, but they maintained the dictator in power for over three decades. That is to say, when Congolese rose up to overthrow the dictator, then the U.S. would send in 
uh, its proxy forces uh, to the point there's even one point those uh, uh, fire uh, jet fighters or pilots out that were ejected from Cuba by Castro and found themselves in Miami uh, and welcomed by the United States. They were recruited to go and bomb Congolese in the 1960s. Uh, Malcolm talked about this in his speeches as well, and it's also well documented. And uh, so whenever there was an effort to rise up against the dictatorship that the United States had installed over the Congolese people, the U.S. would come in and uh, make sure that the dictator play, dictatorship was maintained in place. So uh, that set the mold for the conditions that we see today where Congolese live in abject poverty, uh, where the leadership is a comprador, is a corrupt comprador class. They, uh, they don't govern, but they reign, and they reign in the interest of foreign capital. That was Maurice Carney of Friends of Congo. In Southern Africa, a broad social movement is determined to oust the king of Swaziland, one of the continent's few remaining monarchs. Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire, reports that Swaziland's people are saying it's past time for the king to vacate the throne. Abayomi, I wanted to begin today talking about the recent explosion of protest and public unrest in Swaziland that uh, are aimed squarely at uh, the government of King Munswati III, who is actually the last absolute monarch on the African continent, interestingly enough. And um, these have basically been pro-democracy protests in the sense that the people of Swaziland no longer want to be ruled by a king or by a, a, a monarchy. They want to be able to um, uh, elect a prime minister and all these sorts of things and these ministers and, and other sort of positions in their government. And this has triggered a deep repression from uh, the Kingdom Swati uh, uh, government. Um, I know that some of the king's uh, properties uh, have been attacked in the course of this uh, that have also been a part of this uh, police violence where at least 24 people have been killed with over 70 injured on these political crackdowns. And I mean, I don't believe this is the first time that people have uh, protested the king in Swaziland, but Abayomi, I'm just wondering how it's all sort of striking you in this moment and uh, wondering why you think these protests are uh, ramping up the way they have here uh, uh, lately. It is uh, unprecedented uh, in recent times uh, in regard to the unrest that's taking place in uh, Swaziland, which was renamed uh, East Watini. Uh, but uh, it appears as if the democracy movement has rejected the relabeling of the uh, kingdom of Swaziland. And a lot of the uh, protests uh, is being led by the Communist Party of Swaziland, the CPS, and uh, they have uh, a considerable amount of influence in the uh, uh, in the uh, Swaziland Youth Congress, uh, which is uh, playing a leading role in the demonstrations. And as you mentioned, it is an absolute monarchy. Uh, if you look at the other uh, two monarchies in Africa, the Kingdom of Lesotho, uh, that's headed by Letsia the Third. Uh, they do have a parliament uh, in Lesotho. Uh, they have a prime minister, and uh, it's not an absolute uh, monarchy. The same situation in the kingdom of Morocco, where you have a king, but at the same time, they do have a parliament, although uh, the uh, kingdom of Morocco is heavily repressive and 
also is uh, continuing to occupy the uh, Western Sahara uh, in contravention of uh, the United Nations and the African Union mandates uh, for uh, democratic uh, elections. But in regard to Swaziland, yes, uh, the country uh, has a lot of uh, problems in terms of economic development. Uh, there's not uh, open uh, discussion and debate uh, about the problems of the country. And uh, I believe that um, the king uh, is really in an untenable position at this point, uh, King Mswati III, uh, because the reports that he has fled the country, uh, that can't be confirmed. Uh, but at the same time, he's going to have to uh, institute some reforms in order to bring about uh, a semblance of stability. Uh, inside the country. The country has a small population um, and uh, possibly a million people, but they are part of the uh, Southern African Development Community, uh, which is also in a position, uh, and I'm sure they're um, having informal or, or, or you know, undisclosed uh, discussions. Uh, but uh, yes, it's going to have to uh, be some reforms in Swaziland. It seems as if uh, the principal demand is for democratization of the country, uh, even though the, um, the Communist Party of Swaziland is, is, is playing a leading role in it. Their main thrust, at least in the first instance, uh, instance is uh, some form of democratization uh, inside the country. Yeah, and I mean, um, yeah, it's pretty uh, interesting when we sort of factor this into the uh, broader struggle sort of happening elsewhere on the continent. And, and I mean, from a historical standpoint, Abayomi, I guess I'm wondering, you know, like what role have these uh, uh, monarchical type uh, uh, structures in countries like Swaziland? How has that uh, sort of factored or impacted conditions amidst this sort of centuries running process of uh, colonization, imperialism, and uh, a resource extraction that has really defined um, the reality inside the African continent? For, for quite a long time. I mean, how do you sort of see that uh, dynamic of an absolute monarch factoring in there? If you look at it historically, uh, the monarchies on the African continent uh, were very strong uh, leading up to the period of uh, enslavement and colonialism. And uh, they played a contradictory role. Uh, some of them, of course, uh, were staunch opponents of uh, the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, they fought against it uh, vigorously. A uh, story that's often not told in uh, the official annals of uh, historiography uh, in regard to, um, you know, the relations between uh, the West and the African continent. Uh, but there were uh, monarchical leaders uh, and who had the support of their people who fought against uh, the Atlantic slave trade. They also fought against the uh, imposition of colonialism. And, um, however, uh, when... Uh, the colonialists and the imperialists and the enslavers uh, conquered uh, some territories on the continent. Uh, they installed leaders uh, that were compliant and supported uh, imperialism. So it's, it's been a contradictory um, struggle uh, throughout history. Uh, the historical development of human society, you know, has gone uh, from the uh, period of communalism to uh, feudalism. Uh, enslavement, and then, of course, uh, capitalism and socialism. Uh, but uh, the, the problem is is that uh, you still have a wealth system 
uh, that's highly dominated uh, by imperialism. Uh, the United States still wells tremendous and even dominant influence on many areas of the world geopolitically. And uh, Africa, of course, is a prime example uh, where this is still in existence. Uh, so the U.S. Um, government, uh, it would be interesting to see what position they take uh, on this existing uh, rebellion in uh, Swaziland, uh, because I'm sure uh, they would not want uh, any type of people's democracy uh, to come about uh, in Swaziland in an area uh, that has, uh, of course, uh, not uh, been seen as a progressive country, uh, even during the period of uh, the struggle against apartheid uh, in the um, 1970s, 1980s, uh, they were not in a position to be out front. Lesotho, interestingly enough, which is totally landlocked uh, by the Republic of South Africa, did play a leading role uh, in uh, the struggle against um, white minority rule in South Africa. In fact, um, the ANC's military, Mkonto with Sisley, was based there for many years clandestinely. Uh, Chris Honey lived there from 1974 to 1982. Uh, but in 1986, uh, the government of uh, Leopold Jonathan in uh, Lesotho was overthrown, largely at the aegis of uh, the then-existing apartheid government. But Swaziland, of course, um, uh, was not in a position diplomatically uh, or militarily to play a position, play a, a leading role in the anti-apartheid struggle. But uh, now those contradictions are coming to the fore, and you have a lot of young people who are facing unemployment and uh, just a lack of having any type of um, uh, career or prospects for uh, permanent work or employment. And, uh, of course, uh, they are uh, being uh, politically uh, educated, and organized uh, by left-wing forces inside the country. And uh, if, if the left is leading the struggle for democracy, then it could very well, you know, signal, you know, something that uh, could be very progressive inside the country. Yeah, I think so. And switching gears a little bit here at Biome, I know that you recently published a piece about Mali entitled uh, Malian Whirlwinds, AFRICOM and the Military uh, Presidency. And uh, we had you on a little while ago uh, talking about um, everything that had been taking place uh, in Mali. And this also comes as Emmanuel Macron has announced the withdrawal and ending of uh, Operation Burakani in West Africa. And I mean, there's a whole issue happening in terms of uh, the Sahel region and what this will mean moving forward. And one of the points that you hit on is how um, uh, the leader of the Malian coup was actually trained by the Pentagon. And I was hoping you could sort of get into that and talk about what the role of the U.S. means, not only for Mali, but sort of uh, the broader region. Yes. And, you know, this has happened repeatedly. Uh, if you look at uh, even the coup in uh, 2012, uh, the leader of it uh, was also uh, trained in uh, several Pentagon uh, military colleges inside the United States, and Asime Guaita, uh, who declared himself president uh, over the last few weeks, uh, also has that same uh, background. So it illustrates uh, that the United States Africa Command, AFRICOM, is really a destabilizing factor on the continent, uh, although they claim that they're there to assist uh, African governments uh, in their internal security uh, apparatus, as well as the fight against uh, jihadist uh, terrorism. Uh, but we know, uh, historically, 
that uh, these same jihadist terrorists, such as Al-Qaeda and the uh, Islamic State, uh, actually were engineered uh, by uh, U.S. imperialism. Uh, Al-Qaeda, of course, in Afghanistan, uh, beginning in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the fight against the socialist uh, government in Afghanistan, and uh, also in uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, to fight against uh, those forces allied uh, with Iran and the whole uh, resistance axis of West Asia, uh, being um, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, uh, the uh, Syrian government of uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, the uh, Ansarullah in Yemen, uh, and other forces uh, in the region. Uh, so we just had uh, a bombing by the Biden administration of uh, an area between uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, the U.S. is there uh, in Syria occupying uh, the oil fields, utilizing the oil resources of Syria uh, to uh, fund and supply uh, one of the Kurdish militias, the SDF, uh, which is fighting against the Syrian government. So they're not playing um, a helpful role at all in Iraq or Syria. And the, the government in Syria does not want them there. And the government in Iraq does not want them there. Uh, so, And they're claiming that they're bombing uh, because uh, these uh, forces are backed uh, by Tehran. Uh, so we can see uh, that uh, ISIS, al-Qaeda, and these other purported uh, Islamist uh, jihadist organizations are used by U.S. imperialism uh, whenever uh, they find it necessary. They used them in Libya uh, 10 years ago uh, to fight against the Jamaria under Gaddafi, and they've been used to fight against uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria and against the uh, current uh, government in Iraq, which is, uh, has good cooperation with Syria as well as Iran. So, you know, they can say that, uh, but it's just a rationale for them to stay there. Uh, and uh, continue uh, their operations. Now, Operation Burkani uh, from France, they're claiming that uh, they're going to downsize the operation, but we have to see exactly uh, what happens. Uh, it could be a tactic to put pressure on uh, the military junta in Mali uh, to ensure uh, some type of cooperation with the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, which wants some type of interim uh, civilian uh, government. Uh, but uh, that remains to be seen. These countries have their own internal difficulties. And um, France, of course, uh, has its tentacles all through uh, West Africa uh, and also the Sahel region. And, and in fact, they're trying to penetrate uh, Nigeria, even though Nigeria is a former British colony that has historically has had close ties with the United States economically and politically as well as militarily. Uh, but France is making uh, renewed overtures uh, to the uh, government of Mohamedou Buhari in Nigeria. So yes, uh, France, uh, don't count them out uh, in terms of their imperialist intervention uh, in West Africa. Yeah, and I feel like whenever we have this conversation now by Yomi, we can never leave out really the centrality of resource exploitation, which seems to be a big driver of um, the ongoing colonial exploits inside the African continent and talking about countries like Mali, like Burkina Faso, like Niger and the um, uh, uh, natural resources that they they have at their disposal that, you know, uh, uh, the Euro-American sort of imperialist 
complex, if you will, is determined to keep its uh, grubby little hands on, to say the very least, as it has throughout the centuries. You know what I mean? And so I just feel like it's important to always keep in mind about so much of the instability that we see on the African continent, so many of the issues, so much of the suffering, frankly. it You know, in the West, it's framed to us as it's this racist framing as this kind of inherent intrinsic um, incompetence and uh, corruption on the part of Africans. And it's true there's corruption, but I feel like we can't really view that outside of the broader context of imperialism, both outside and inside the continent itself. No, the uh, capitalist corporations that operate there encourage uh, corruption. Uh, They've been doing it uh, for decades, if not centuries. And another factor is that uh, today is the uh, 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. And uh, the U.S. is very concerned, as well as Britain, about the uh, growing uh, cooperation and influence of the People's Republic of China uh, among the African Union uh, member states. There's the uh, Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, FOCAC, uh, which has been in existence now for about 20 years, a little over 20 years. And uh, they're very concerned about that, and uh, they're even willing to risk war uh, with China. It appears it could start, you know, in the um, South China Sea, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. But it also involves um, influence over the African continent, as well as uh, what's called Latin America, you know, Central America and uh, South America. So, yeah, I think that is a key factor in all of this, and... They uh, want to uh, maintain Africa and other geopolitical regions of the world, West Asia, you know, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman, uh, Yemen, to maintain control, you know, over those countries uh, because of the oil resources. And as you mentioned, in Africa, there's, of course, gold, diamonds, uh, there's oil, tremendous oil resources. Uh, We see in in East Africa now, in Mozambique, uh, the, the... the surfacing of an insurgency there in Cabo Delgado uh, because they have uh, tremendous potential in regard to liquefied natural gas resources. So that's been disrupted right now. Uh, so the entire region of Southern Africa is being impacted, you know, by these jihadist uh, groups. Uh, so, yes, it, it's a major uh, struggle that's going on right now, but at the root of it uh, is the intrigue of imperialism. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report, information for liberation. 